Okay, lessons from the life of George Mueller. Let's pray before we start. Lord, may your blessing just attend us now. And the thing that you did a uh, hundred and seventy-five years ago through a man, Lord, we pray that it might be repeated in us, that you would teach us the importance of faith and prayer. Help us, Lord, to learn to rely upon your word completely. In Jesus' name, amen. George Mueller was undoubtedly one of the most amazing men of God that we know anything about in church history. And so tonight I want to share something about his amazing life with you. What we're going to do is we're going to go in three parts tonight. First, we're going to talk about his life, an overview of his life. And then we're going to look at his theology, briefly. And then we're going to look at uh, three lessons that we can glean from his life that we can, we can use him as an example. You know, Paul said, follow me insofar as I follow Christ. Well, I think we could say the same thing about anybody, including George Mueller. Follow him insofar as he follows Jesus Christ. So let's talk about his life. He was born on September 27th, 1805. And he died on March 10th, 1898. He was 92 years old when he died. He lived almost the entire 19th century from beginning to end. He was born in the kingdom of Prussia, which is modern-day Germany today. And throughout his lifetime, he did follow-up work for D.L. Moody's evangelistic campaigns. He shared Charles Spurgeon's pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit in London. And he also inspired Hudson Taylor in his missionary ventures when he went to China. He grew up as a godless young man. His father worked to collect taxes for the government. And by the time George Mueller was only 10 years old, he was already stealing money from his father, who had received the money from the government in terms of taxes. Uh, as a boy of 14, his mother lay dying. And when his mother was dying, he was roving the streets with a gang of ruffians, half, in half intoxicated. He wasn't, he wasn't by his mother's bedside. He was out partying and just raising hell, really. Um, he was a thief, he was a liar, and he was a gambler. He found himself in prison when he was 16 years old for stealing. His father paid to get him out of prison, beat him, and then took him to another town to live. So he was one of those guys that was really hard to try to reform. Uh, his father eventually sent him to university because he wanted him to study for the ministry. He thought that the ministry would be an easy way to make a living and make lots of money. It would be an easy life. And so a lot of people did that back in the 19th century. That's what they thought. <laughs> um, he later says that in that university that he went to, out of 900 students, there were maybe nine people who feared God. Nine out of 900. This is what he said about his childhood. I, li I lived in wicked behavior and unrepentant spirit. Despite my sinful lifestyle and cold heart, God had mercy on me. I was as careless as ever. I had no Bible and had not read any scripture for years. I seldom went to church, and out of custom only, I took the Lord's Supper twice a year. I never heard the gospel preached. Nobody told me that Jesus meant for Christians, by the help of God, to live according to the Holy Scriptures. So he had no clue 
what it meant to follow Jesus. Now, when he was 20 years old, he was invited to a home Bible study. He had some acquaintances that met on Saturdays where they would read a printed sermon, they would sing some songs, and they would pray. And he attended this. And he says, he writes about that occasion, quote, The whole made a deep impression on me. I was happy. Though if I had been asked why I was happy, I could not have clearly explained it. I have not the least doubt that on that evening, God began a work of grace in me. That evening was the turning point in my life. So a simple little thing like a home Bible study. Don't uh, despise small things. Don't despise our church, even though we meet in a home and we're 30 or 40 people. God can do mighty, mighty things through anything that he wants to do. And he used a small little home Bible study to convert George Mueller. When he was 28 years old, now he's been a zealous believer for about four years. Um, he has gone to Bristol, England. He, he and a friend of his, Henry Crake, are co-pastoring a church there in Bristol, England. And when he was 28 years old, he founded the Scripture Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad. So, I'll, I'll explain to you what that means. This institute had five different branches to it. The first one was that he wanted to develop schools for children and adults to teach Bible knowledge. Maybe sort of like our Sunday schools today. Uh, two, he wanted to distribute Bibles to people. That was the second branch of this. Number three, missionary support. He wanted to give money away to missionaries who needed it to survive and to get the gospel out. Number four, tract and book distribution. And then number five, he wanted to board, clothe, and scripturally educate destitute children who have lost both parents by death. That was his definition of an orphan. A scripturally, I'm sorry, um, a destitute child who had lost both parents by death. Now we know George Mueller mostly for the orphanages that he started and maintained only through faith and prayer. But there was a whole lot more to his life than just that. That was only one aspect of it. During his life, he built five large orphanages, and he cared for 10,024 different orphans during his life. When he started that ministry in 1834, so let's see, he would be about 29 years old when he started his first orphanage, there were accommodations for only 3,600 orphans in all of England. Okay, And there were twice that many children under the years of eight years, eight years old, that were in prison. Now, do you know why that would be? These orphans would go around stealing. And so they would be arrested and they'd be taken to prison. There was nothing else to do for them. They didn't have any orphanages to put them in, so they'd put them in prison. So there was over 7,200 orphans in prison that were under eight years old when George Mueller began his ministry. Fifty years after he began his work, there was at least 100,000 orphans being cared for in England. So it went from 3,600 to 100,000 in a 50-year span, and it was because people were inspired by his life and what he had done, and they started to emulate his example and start orphanages all over the place. So it was a wonderful work that God started through him and spread all over the place. In addition to all this work, he preached three times a week from 1830 to 1898 for 68 years. 
probably over 10,000 different sermons to his local church. Okay, that's quite a feat. But, and this is what I find really interesting, when he turned 70 years old, now people here in America, we start retiring at age 65. He's 70 years old, so what do you, you think that he's going to settle down and collect seashores or stamps or go play golf? <laughs> it was his lifelong dream to be a missionary. So at 70 years of age, uh, he begins traveling itinerantly and speaking to groups of people wherever they might be gathered. And uh, he does it for 17 years, from the time he's 70 years old until he's 87 years old. He speaks in 42 different countries. He preaches almost every day. Now, remember, he's doing this from 70 to 87. I don't know how many of us at 87 years of age are going to be traveling all over the world <laughs> preaching the gospel. That's George Mueller for you. But you think, okay, he's 87. He finally comes back home. You think he's going to finally settle down? He doesn't. He keeps on preaching in his church until the, um, the Sunday before he died at 92 years of age. And this is what he says. Just a few months before he died, he wrote this. I have been able every day and all the day to work, and that with ease, as 70 years since. So, in other words, when I was in my 20s, I began this labor for the Lord, and I've been able to do that all these 70 years, and I'm still able to do it at 92 years of age. So God tremendously blessed him in terms of his health and his strength to be able to serve the Lord which is a real kindness to him. On March 9th, 1898, he led a prayer meeting at his church, 92 and a half years old. Then he went to bed. The following morning, somebody brought him a cup of tea and they knocked on the door and nobody answered. And then when they went inside, they found him at the side of the bed, uh, crumpled in a heap, and he was dead. I wonder if he was in prayer at the side of his bed when he died. Wouldn't that be cool to die when you're in prayer? (laughs) Just enter straight into the gates of heaven. Um, The funeral was held the following Monday in Bristol, where he had served for 66 years. It says, Tens of thousands of people reverently stood along the route of the simple procession. Men left their workshops and offices. Women left their elegant homes or humble kitchens all seeking to pay a last token of respect. A thousand children gathered for a service at the orphan house number three. They had now for a second time lost a father. Here's a, a poor man. He, he didn't have money that he could bequeath when he died. He had given it all away. Here's a poor man who tens of thousands of people are coming to pay their last respects because they know that he was a godly man and that God had used him mightily and they just wanted to honor him. I just find that a beautiful thing. During the course of his life, he married twice. He married Mary Groves when he was 25 years old and then she died when he was 64 and later when he was 66, he married Susanna Sanger. He had four children through Mary. Two of those were stillborn, which happened quite often in the 19th century. He had another son named Elijah who died when he was only one year old. His only surviving child, Lydia, died in 1890 when she was 57. His first wife died when he was 64. His second wife died when he was 89. So George Mueller outlived both of his wives, all of his children. He was left alone with his Lord, his church, and 2,000 orphans. All of his family were gone. 
That's a little bit about his life. Now, let's talk about his theology a little bit. He became an earnest Christian right off after his conversion at age 20. He tried to become a missionary to the Jews through the London Missionary Society, but because he had doctrinal disagreements with the London Missionary Society, uh, they were post-millennial and he was pre-millennial, and there's a couple of other doc doctrinal distinctions. Uh, eventually, he left that particular society. Um, he says that his preaching for his first four years was fruitless. He wasn't seeing results. He wasn't seeing people converted. Finally, when he became sick, he went to the town of Tainmouth to recover. And there at Ebenezer Chapel, he became convinced of two very important things that really governed the rest of his life. One, he became convinced of the doctrines of God's sovereign grace. And two, he became convinced of the importance of reading and meditating on the Word of God. We'll talk more about those. How old was he when he got sick? Um, let me see if I can find it for you. I, well, it says the first four years, so I'm going to guess he was about 24 when that took place. This is what he writes. Through the instrumentality... Oh, let me go back. While he was recovering from this illness in this town, um, Tainmouth, he was there for a couple of weeks. There was another brother that he was staying with. We don't know his name. He's one of those people that God used and nobody knows anything about him. But he was staying with George Mueller and he was speaking into his life. Never underestimate the power of just having discussions with someone one-on-one -on -one and what God can do to that. So this is what he writes. Through the instrumentality of this brother, the Lord bestowed a great blessing upon me, for which I shall have cause to thank him throughout eternity. Before this period, I had been much opposed to the doctrines of election, particular redemption, and final persevering grace. So much so, that a few days after my arrival at Tainmouth, I called election a devilish doctrine. I knew nothing about the choice of God's people, and did not believe that the child of God, when once made so, was safe forever. But now I was brought to examine these precious truths by the word of God. He also wrote this, in the course of time, I came to this country, and it pleased God then to show me the doctrines of grace in a way in which I had not seen them before. At first, I hated them. And I'll just interrupt myself. I think a lot of us could probably say the same thing. At first, we hated them until we really saw them for the beautiful thing that they were. But he had the same reaction that we did. At first, I hated them. If this were true, I could do nothing at all in the conversion of sinners, as all would depend upon God and the working of His Spirit. But when it pleased God to reveal these truths to me, and my heart was brought to such a state that I could say, I am not only content simply to be a hammer, an axe, or a saw in God's hands, but I shall count it an honor to be taken up and used by Him in any way. And if sinners are converted through my instrumentality, from my inmost soul I will give Him all the glory. The Lord gave me to see fruit. The Lord gave me to see fruit in abundance. Sinners were converted by scores. And ever since, God has used me in one way or other in His service. So isn't that beautiful? There is a turning point in his life when he really saw the sovereignty of God and believed it, and God began to use him in a mighty way to see people converted. Now, the way Mueller looked at these doctrines of grace, that's just a, a shorthand way of talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. The way he looked at that is, he looked at this as sovereign goodness. 
God is sovereignly good in the way he deals with sinners. God is good, and so when he exercises his sovereignty on behalf of someone, it's his goodness being exercised in a sovereign way. Um, it was at that time that George Mueller gave up a regular salary. Up until that time, he was being paid a certain amount every month, and he was no longer comfortable with that. He believed that God was able to do anything he wanted. He believed in the sovereignty of God, and so he said, please stop paying me a monthly salary. We'll put a little box here. If people from the church want to help towards my uh, maintenance, they can put whatever they desire in that box, and that's what I'm going to live on from now on. And I'm just going to trust God to provide my needs. So he started that at that time. He also decided that he was going to refuse to ask anyone directly for money for the rest of his life. And he also decided he was never going to go into debt. Those are the three guiding principles of his life. Never go into debt, never ask for money, and he was not going to accept a salary anymore. He says this, How the means are to come, I know not. But I know that God is almighty, that the hearts of all are in his hands, and if he pleaseth to influence persons, they will send help. That was his confidence. He just knew that God was able to change people's hearts and get things done. His faith in God's sovereign goodness also enabled him to bear the death of his precious wife Mary when he was 64 years old. Let me read to you what he wrote about that situation. He says, Were we happy? He's talking here about he and his wife Mary. Were we happy? Verily we were. With every year our happiness increased more and more. I never saw my beloved wife at any time when I met her unexpectedly anywhere in Bristol without being delighted so to do. I never met her even in the orphan houses without my heart being delighted so to do. Day by day, as we met in our dressing room at the orphan houses to wash our hands before dinner and tea, I was delighted to meet her and she was equally pleased to see me. Thousands of times I told her, My darling, I never saw you at any time since you became my wife without my being delighted to see you. You see the kind of relationship they shared, right? Then came the diagnosis of his wife's illness. The doctor's name is Mr. Pritchard. That's how he refers to him. When I heard what Mr. Pritchard's judgment was, that the malady was rheumatic fever, I naturally expected the worst. My heart was nigh to be broken on account of the depth of my affection. So here's a saint. He's just heard that his wife's going to die. And how does he handle it? What does he do? He says, 20 minutes after four on the Lord's Day, February 6, 1870, Mary died. I fell on my knees and I thanked God for her release and for having taken her to himself and asked the Lord to help and support us. The last portion of scripture which I had read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, he says, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace. And to all such, he will give glory also. I said to myself with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner. But I have been saved by the blood of Christ. And I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. 
Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. There's the key of his phrase there. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word and believing what he says. So you see something of his, the way he approached the Christian life. He, he found a promise in the word of God. And if it applied to something in his life, he just took it and believed it and expected God to answer that promise. He didn't know when. He would just wait on the Lord until the Lord brought that promise to fruition. But in the case of his wife, he felt he did not have a specific promise that God was going to restore her. And so he asked conditionally, if it would be good for my soul, and if it would be good for my wife, and if it would be for your glory, then please, Lord, raise her up again. And evidently it didn't meet those conditions. And so the Lord took her home. He was laying hold of Psalm 8411. That's the scripture he was quoting. Now let's talk about his legacy. What did he leave to the church when he died? There are three lessons that, um, that I see from his life. The first one is the importance of seeking our happiness in the Lord. Let me read to you from his journals. He says, According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Now he's, he's telling us the most important thing. We can forget about everything else. We've got to remember this one, right? Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. It's the most important thing any Christian could do, according to him. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have an urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and thirty years. So 35 years, this is how he's been living his life. For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its vast importance. But now, after much experience, I specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God, having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. Are you following his train of thought? Mm -hmm. The most important thing in our lives, if he's right, is that we would seek happiness in the Lord. Okay. That's all I'm going to say about that point, but I think it's an awesome point. You know, in the scripture it says, Rejoice in the Lord, and again I will say rejoice. In Nehemiah 8 it says, uh, the, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So it is not wrong for you to seek your joy. Just make sure it's in the Lord. Okay, the second point that he, he leaves us as a legacy is the importance of meditating on the Word of God. You would say, well, how do we derive our happiness and soul satisfaction in the Lord? How do we do that? Let me let him answer you. He says, but in what way shall we attain to this settled happiness of soul? How shall we learn to enjoy God? How obtain such an all-sufficient soul-satisfying portion in Him as shall enable us to let go the things of this world as vain and worthless in comparison? I answer, this happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. 
God has therein revealed himself unto us in the face of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say this, Happiness in God comes from seeing God revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ through the scriptures. In them, we become acquainted with the character of God. Our eyes are divinely opened to see what a lovely being God is. I love that phrase. What a lovely being God is. And this good, gracious, notice how he views God. This good, gracious, loving Heavenly Father is ours, our portion for time and for eternity. Knowing God is the key to being happy in God. The more we know of God, the happier we are. When we become a little acquainted with God, our true happiness is commenced. And the more we become acquainted with Him, the more truly happy we become. What will make us so exceedingly happy in heaven? It will be the fuller knowledge of God. Mueller loved the Bible. He read through the entire Bible almost 200 times during his lifetime. Now, folks, how many of you have read through your Bible 200 times? <laughs> and so he would read through it, and he would start right over. That's was, that was his regular practice, just reading through the Bible over and over and over and over. During the last portion of his life, it wasn't uncommon for him to read the Bible four times in a year. So every three months, he's going through the whole Bible. He's just a voracious Bible. He's consuming Scripture as much as he can. Often we can become so much more interested in reading a Christian book or Christian commentaries. Uh, Mueller didn't have that fascination with other Christian books. He said at one point that he read the Bible ten times as much as he had read any other Christian book. It was just the Bible. He loved it. He loved the Word of God. Listen to him again. He says, the Holy Spirit alone can teach us about our state by nature, show us the need of a Savior, enable us to believe in Christ, explain to us the Scriptures, help us in our preaching. It was my beginning to understand this latter point, helping in preaching, in particular, which had a great effect on me. For the Lord enabled me to put it to the test of experience by laying aside commentaries and almost every other book and simply reading the Word of God and studying it. The result of this was that the first evening that I shut myself into my room to give myself to prayer and meditation over the scriptures, I learned more in a few hours than I had done during a period of several months previously. But the particular difference was that I received real strength from my soul in doing so. I now began to try the test of the scriptures, by the test of the scriptures, the things which I had learned and seen and found that only those principles which stood the test were really of value. So if he can teach us one thing by his example is to love the Bible, love the Word of God, uh, ask God to give you a greater appetite for the Word of God so that it becomes truly your, your food for the day. Here's one of his journal entries. The primary business I must attend to every day is to fellowship with the Lord. The first concern is not how much I might serve the Lord, but how my inner man might be nourished. I may share the truth with the unconverted, I may try to encourage believers, I may relieve the distressed, or I may in other ways seek to behave as a child of God, yet not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day may result in this work being done in a wrong spirit. The most important thing I had to do was read the Word of God and to meditate on it. Thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, 
warned, reproved, and instructed. Formerly, when I rose, I began to pray as soon as possible. But I often spent a quarter of an hour to an hour on my knees struggling to pray while my mind wandered. Now I rarely have this problem. As my heart is nourished by the truth of the word, I am brought into true fellowship with God. I speak to my father and to my friend, although I am unworthy, about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. It often astonishes me that I did not see the importance of meditation upon scripture earlier in my Christian life. As the outward man is not fit for work for any length of time unless he eats, so it is with the inner man. What is the food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God. Not the simple reading of the word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe. No, we must consider what we read, ponder over it, and apply it to our hearts. Now right there, he's given you a definition of what it means to meditate on scripture. Consider what you have read, ponder over it, and apply it to your own heart. He says this also, When we pray, we speak to God. This exercise of the soul can be best performed after the inner man has been nourished by meditation on the Word of God. Through His Word, our Father speaks to us, encourages us, comforts us, instructs us, humbles us, and reproves us. We may profitably meditate with God's blessing, although we're spiritually weak. The weaker we are, the more meditation we need to strengthen our inner man. Meditation on God's word has given me the help and strength to pass peacefully through deep trials. What a difference there is when the soul is refreshed in fellowship with God early in the... Here's another key. Early in the morning. Without spiritual preparation, the service, the trials, and the temptations of the day can be overwhelming. How many of us take his advice and early in the morning we rise and we're feeding our inner man with God's word that's the food for the soul so that we have this fellowship with Christ that will strengthen us for whatever happens that day it's really really good advice now when he was 71 years old he was speaking to younger younger believers and this is what he told them now in brotherly love and affection I would give a few hints to my younger fellow believers as to the way in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment. It is absolutely needful, in order that happiness in the Lord may continue, that the scriptures be regularly read. These are God's appointed means for the nourishment of the inner man. Consider it and ponder over it. Especially we should read regularly through the scriptures consecutively and not pick out here and there a chapter. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) If all we ever read is a devotional or a book about the Bible, folks, we will remain spiritual dwarfs. And I know a lot of Christians are like that. They, They don't get into the Bible itself. They don't grapple with God himself. They let somebody else feed them a few teaspoons a day, but they don't open up their mouths wide and let God fill it with his holy word. And so I want to... Well... I'll let George Mueller challenge you to be people of the book, people of the scripture, that that you're nourishing yourself on the scripture. I'll keep reading. He says, I tell you so affectionately. He, He was concerned he was hurting their feelings. I tell you so affectionately. For the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole, with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. 
Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I have been doing this for 47 years. I have read through the whole Bible about 100 times, and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus my peace and joy have increased more and more. Now, if he had been doing this for 47 years, and he had read through the Bible 100 times, he's reading it on an average of twice every year. So my question to all of us, myself included, is are we daily meditating on the Word of God? And I'm not talking about just reading the Word of God. Right? He makes a, a big deal that it's not just reading like water going through a pipe. It's, um, let me remember the words he uses. Pondering was one. Consider. Consider, yes. Consider, ponder, and apply it to your hearts. And that's why I think the... The plan that we have as a church is we're reading through the Bible. <laughs> we're going through uh, chronologically, but that's fine. We're reading through the Bible from beginning to end. So I want to encourage you, if you're doing that, have your journal right next to your Bible as you read. Because how is it best to consider, ponder, and apply? It's to write your thoughts down so that you can really think about. When you're writing, you have to slow down and really actually think about the things that you're writing. And I find that one of the best ways to meditate is to write, and as, as well as to read. So have a journal by your Bible and write your thoughts. And then, folks, I would love it, and I'm sure Debbie would love it, if the sisters and the brothers would mutually encourage each other with what God is showing them day by day. What is it that you're applying to your heart and to your soul that day? What has the Lord showed you that he wants you to apply? I want to hear that. I want, I want to be encouraged from what God is showing you. So that's what he says when he was 71 years old. So that's the, that's, the, that's the second lesson. The first one is the importance of finding our happiness and joy in the Lord. The second one is the importance of meditating on the Word of God. The third one is the importance of faith and prayer. Mueller lived his entire life with no prearranged salary. He never asked anyone directly for money. He never went into debt. And through prayer alone, he received from other people what would be the equivalent today of $150 million. Through, he never asked anybody for money, and that's what people sent him through prayer. And that's how he ran his orphanages. That's how he sent out missionaries. That's how he distributed Bibles and books and tracts. That's how he lived, got his daily living. It was all through faith and prayer. Let me just share some of the examples from his life with you. Once, while he was crossing the Atlantic on the SS Sardinian, the ship, in August of 1877, he was on a missionary trip to preach somewhere. His ship ran into thick fog, and he explained to the captain that he needed to be in Quebec by the following afternoon. But Captain Joseph E. Dutton, later known as Holy Joe, said that he was slowing the ship down for safety and Mueller's appointment would have to be missed. So Mueller asked to use the chart room to pray for the lifting of the fog. The captain followed him down, claiming it would be a waste of time. After Mueller prayed, very simple prayer, the captain started to pray, but Mueller stopped him, partly because of the captain's unbelief, but mainly because he believed the prayer had already been answered. 
Mueller said, Captain, I have known my Lord for more than 50 years, and there is not one instance that I have failed to have an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, for you will find that the fog is gone. When the two men went back to the bridge, they found the fog had lifted. And Mueller was able to keep his appointment, and the captain became a Christian shortly thereafter. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Love that story. Let me give you another one. He prayed about everything, and he expected each prayer to be answered. Um, one example was when one of the orphan house's boilers stopped working. Mueller needed to have it fixed, and this was a problem because the boiler was bricked up and the weather was worsening with each day, so he prayed for two things. Firstly, that the workers he had hired would have a mind to work throughout the night, and secondly, that the weather would let up. On the Tuesday before the work was due to commence, a bitter north wind still blew, but in the morning, before the workmen arrived, I'm sorry, but in the morning before the workmen arrived, a southerly wind began to blow, and it was so mild that no fires were needed to heat the buildings. That evening, the foreman of the contracted company attended the site to see how he might speed things along, and he instructed the men to report back first thing in the morning to make an early resumption of work. The team leader stated that they would prefer to work through the night. The job was completed in 30 hours. There's just another example of very specific prayers being answered. Let me give you another one. One time all of the orphans were sitting down for their meal, but there was nothing in the house to feed them. And when that took place, uh, they heard a knock on the door. When they went to answer the door, uh, it was the baker who had... Um, let me see, see how this goes. The baker knocked on the door with sufficient fr fresh bread to feed everyone, and the milkman gave them plenty of fresh milk because his cart broke down in front of the orphanage. <laughs> so nothing to eat five minutes before. They prayed, God sends a milkman, and he sends a baker to their door. He says this in February 12th of 1842. He was 37 years old. A brother in the Lord came to me this morning, and after a few minutes of conversation gave me 2,000 pounds for furnishing the new orphan house. Now, back in that day, that was a lot, a lot of money. He says, Now I am able to meet all of the expenses. In all probability, I will even have several hundred pounds more than I need. The Lord not only gives as much as is absolutely necessary for His work, but He gives abundantly. This blessing filled me with inexplicable delight. He had given me the full answer to my thousands of prayers during the past 1,195 days. So he would keep records of how many days he had been praying. He, I'm sure he had prayer journals where he's writing down the things he's praying for, how many days he's praying for it, because he's expecting God to answer. And then he's checking them off as God answers the prayers. Not a bad idea for us to have a prayer journal. Now, most people assume that George Mueller had the gift of faith. And that's why he could do this. But he adamantly denied that. He says he did not have the gift of faith. The reason he did this is because he wanted, he wanted his life to be an example to other Christians that what he did, they could do too. And if they thought that he had the gift and they didn't, well then, well, I guess there's nothing I can do about that. I, it's great that you have it, but I don't have that gift. But he adamantly refused that he had a special gift. He called it a grace of uh, faith, not a gift of faith. Let me read to you what he says. Think not, dear reader, that I have the gift of faith. That is, that gift of which we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 9. 
and which is mentioned along with the gifts of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, and that on, on that account I am able to trust in the Lord. It is true that the faith which I am able to exercise is altogether God's own gift. It is true that He alone supports it, and that He alone can increase it. It is true that moment by moment I depend upon Him for it, and that if I were only one moment left to myself, my faith would utterly fail. But it is not true that my faith is that gift of faith which is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12.9. The difference between the gift and the grace of faith seems to me this. According to the gift of faith, I am able to do a thing or believe that a thing will come to pass, the not doing of which or the not believing of which would not be sin. Now this is a little tricky to follow. Let me read it again. According to the gift of faith, I am able to do a thing or believe that a thing will come to pass, the not doing of which or the not believing of which would not be sin. Let me keep going. According to the grace of faith, I am able to do a thing or believe that a thing will come to pass, respecting which I have the word of God as the ground to rest upon, and therefore the not doing it or the not believing it would be sin. So, if there is a promise in God's word for something, for us not to believe that promise is sin, because God has told it to us, and we're doubting God. That's the grace of faith. But he says the gift of faith is where it even goes beyond that. You don't have a direct promise in the scripture, but God is somehow able to communicate to you that he wants to do a thing and you believe him for it. And it's a special gift that other Christians don't have. That's the way he understood this gift. He says, for instance, the gift of faith would be needed to believe that a sick person should be restored again, though there is no human probability. For there is no promise to that effect. The grace of faith is needed to believe that the Lord will give me the necessaries of life if I first seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, for there is a promise to that effect. And then he says this, the three chief reasons that I established the orphan houses are this, and he puts them in the order of importance. Number one, that God would be glorified should He be pleased to furnish me with the means in its being seen that it is not a vain thing to trust in Him and that thus the faith of His children may be strengthened. So the number one reason he wanted to start these orphanages was not for the orphans. It was to be an example for all the other Christians that ever heard of him that they could do the same thing that he was doing. You see? That was the most important thing to him. Number two, the spiritual welfare of fatherless and motherless children. Number two, he, want, he cared about these orphans. But it was their spiritual welfare. Number three, their temporal welfare. Their food and their clothing. And their roof over their head. So, over and over again in his autobiography, he'll say something like, The orphan houses exist to display that God can be trusted and to encourage believers to take him at his word. His great passion was to display with open proofs that God could be trusted with the practical affairs of life. So, brothers and sisters, I think the lesson for us is, let's first of all know our Bible well enough to know what the promises are. And if we have a promise from God, let's take him at his word and believe him that he's going to answer that promise. Now, we don't know when. That's God's business. But we do know that God is true to his word, right? And I would encourage all of us to have a little prayer journal where we're writing the requests that we're praying about. And then going back and, and maybe a week later, 
okay, I, I need to revisit that one. I forgot to, to pray for that. He would pray for these things every day <laughs> until God answered. It was just relentless, knocking on heaven's door. So the three lessons from his life, the supreme importance of finding happiness in the Lord, the supreme importance of meditating on the scripture, and the supreme importance of faith and prayer in the believer's life. Amen.